I'd like to call your attention to one other thing, which is that we have instituted a new time in our college ICTHUS fellowship, our college ministry, where we meet over at the campus of IU. Tonight will be in Ashton's Barnes Lounge. Uh, if you go in where the Ashton sign is and go basically to the end of the parking lot, um, you'll find a... Uh, You'll find where we'll be. (laughs) Go to your right. Um, Actually, there should be a map on here. Whoever does this, if you'd put a map on. But if you go to the end, you'll see a a sidewalk that angles off at a 45-degree angle to your right. Make a hard right, 90-degree. Go in the door there, and to your left, you'll find the the lounge. Anyhow, I encourage you to come tonight. Um, But more than that, I encourage... But I really don't encourage, as as one of the fathers of this home, I command you to invite people. Don't come tonight unless you have somebody with you. And I say that because we do care about numbers, because numbers is the objective manifestation of our desire to see none perish, as our Father has objective evidence of his desire that none should perish, namely that he keeps postponing the last judgment. Now, God can't postpone the last judgment, so don't get real literal on me here. (laughs) Nevertheless, it does say that he does postpone the last judgment. So tonight, when you come, do come. But if you come, do bring someone else, if you would, please. This is at 7.30. Stephen Baker, Pastor Stephen Baker, will be teaching again tonight. If you need any information, call any of us, but particularly our college pastor, Chris Taylor, and you see the phone number at the bottom there. Then I would ask that a couple of you, particularly those of you who are men, would go in and visit Ray, our custodian at the hospital. Um, And when you're there, don't be uh, intrusive and invasive, but uh, do do make a point of encouraging him spiritually and speaking to him about his soul. Ray has been very kind. The first day we were here, as everybody but about five of us had already left, Ray was there, and uh, a little child pulled the fire alarm. And when you pull the fire alarm in this building... It is a wake-up experience. All the doors start swinging shut. You know, the ceiling starts coming down. (laughs) The floor starts going up. The water pistols squirt at you. Anyhow, Ray had to run around like a chicken with his head cut off, punching codes in and calling people. And he was completely patient, wasn't even irritated. He's a dear man, so a couple of you men, would you please listen to me and go visit him at the hospital and show him our love and affection. Now, our sermon today is, excuse me, what? I don't know his last name. If I did, don't you think I'd tell you? (laughs) What is it? Proverbs? Roberts. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're going through, this is our 20-something second time of studying this, Galatians chapter 3. And we'll be reading, we'll be reading verses 15 to 18, but we'll be only studying one word. And you'll understand why in a second. Some of you, this will be old territory, but many of you it will be new. 
Galatians 3, verses 15 to 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my foolish and stupid and foul mouth outside of Christ be used by you and the thoughts of all of our hearts be blessed by you to lead us to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, we all know, those of you who are here each week, we all know that the Apostle Paul, in the whole book of Galatians, is continuing to deal with one issue, namely, how are we saved and how are we sanctified? Are we saved and sanctified because we're Jews, because we have the physical mark of a Jew, namely circumcision? Is it, in other words, an act of the law, an act of obedience, or are we saved by placing our faith in Jesus Christ? And he is dealing with a group of people who clearly started the Christian life believing that they were saved by placing their faith in Jesus Christ, but are now down the road of peace and are in danger of, like Christian, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, being led off into other paths and other ways that look very broad and very flat and very nice, but in fact lead into Vanity Fair, to the slew of despond, to many places where, uh, in fact, they're not safe, but they have gotten off the narrow path into the broad path and are in danger, in great spiritual danger. Paul is seeking to obliterate faith in anything and confidence in anything except Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Hello, Dan and Dan and Hawley. Is this your last Sunday for good? Stand up and tell people what you're doing, would you please? Speak up, I can't hear you. The Lord is blessing the two of you with a new child and with a job, and we're, we, we are very, 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 very grateful to the Lord with you. And uh, make a point of saying goodbye to Dan and Holly, and say hi to Dan and goodbye, but I bet Dan Bubeck will be back every now and then, right, Dan? We're happy to have you here. 
Excuse me for interrupting. The title of our sermon this morning, though, is Brethren. And the reason I've titled it this is that we are moving into a section which, in a, in a nitpicky, very detailed way, deals with the question of family relationships. If you look at the text, you'll see, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. And then what does he go into? Well, he goes into a man's covenant and it being set aside, and then Abraham and his seed and seed. So you see that even Paul himself, in this section, that the word brethren has a ton of meanings. Uh, And that he then goes on and he deals with the issue of a covenant, of ratification. In other words, of the way that we are committed to one another through promises, or what we would call today business contracts. The word covenant is sort of a shibboleth, especially of the Reformed community. And like many shibboleths, it loses its meaning because it's too familiar. And sometimes I wish we would just use the word contract because that would really nail it down and we would realize how sensitive this issue is because of how much of our court system is filled with arguments over contracts. And we'd see this is no small thing, is it? Um, Nevertheless, um, we're talking here about a man's covenant. And what we're entering into is is a perverted and twisted argument. And I say perverted and twisted because it goes against the natural thinking process we have. Namely, it goes from the lesser to the greater instead of from the greater to the lesser. Now, there are other examples of this kind of argument in Scripture. For instance, where Jesus is talking about prayer and he says to his disciples... He says, what man, if asked for a loaf of bread, will give his child a stone? All right. And then he he goes on a little bit, and then he says this. He says, now, if you, those of us who are fathers, if you being, what? I love it. If you being evil, think of how we would react against that today. Wait, we are seated in the heavenlies. We are positionally holy and perfect, you know, or, or getting cleansed. And, and Jesus just incidentally says, now, if you being evil, all right, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father delight in giving good gifts to those who belong to him? It's a twisted argument because we're not used to having it go from the lesser to the greater. But that's what Paul's doing here. Paul is going to enter into an argument from analogy where he talks about the way that human beings make commitments to each other. And he says, now, if this is how you do it, how much more is God bound by his covenants, his contracts, his agreements? It is our habit today with language to, do, to make a whole bunch of mistakes. And the reason is that language has been so politicized. Now, we could talk about that for a long time. We could talk about the way various terms are politicized. Uh, One of my favorites is the word values. I refuse to ever say that I have values unless it's the difference between polyester clothing and cotton. And then I have values because they don't mean anything. They're just my preference. But I will never refer to heterosexual intimacy as one of my values. It's not. It is a pre-fall creational mandate written by God eternally binding. It's not a value. Do you understand that? No Christian should ever refer to anything that God's word reveals as a value. 
that he or she has. What we ought to refer to them to is the eternal imprint of the Creator on His creation of His truth. And that goes for being on the university campus. We don't do this just when we're together with each other and then have no witness on the campus. It is most specifically on the campus that we ought to never refer to our values. Because the minute we say values, what are we doing? We're sending a message to them that we are reasonable and that we understand that we're only making a personal statement about what our own personal commitments are. Okay? Another one is the word gay. It may be that it's dead, but I wish it weren't, because gay doesn't mean the same thing as happy. Gay adds a sort of frivolous and, uh, and risky aspect to happiness. When you're gay, you'll jump and dance even though you look like a fool. When you're happy, you'll just smile. And yet gay is dead. Why? Because of the politicization of language today. And when it comes to language, words do have meanings. They're important. And the question is, are we going to allow God to imprint his language on us, or will we force our language, our political ideologies, on God? Now you say, well, that's not at stake in any of the battles over language today. I say, yes, it is at stake. Now I realize that I'm pulling Luther's comments a little bit out of context, but in this section, in his commentary, Luther says this, For such is the nature of all hypocrites, that they will observe man's law exactly, but the laws of God they do despise and most wickedly transgress. It's the nature of hypocrites to be very, very, very careful with the laws of men, but to not give a rip about the laws of God. Augustine has a similar statement in the Confessions where he exclaims over how careful men will be, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, in his statement, it's actually about the laws of grammar, that men are so careful. And yet he says, think nothing about violating the very law of God. Well, we believe as a church that the Bible is inerrant. And that it's not inerrant in what it means to communicate conceptually, but it's inerrant in the very Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic words that are written in the original autographs. We don't believe that the Textus Receptus, the King James text, is inerrant because it's not the original autograph. We don't believe that every translation today is inerrant in every word, because there are mistakes made in translations. And we talk about that, where they do make mistakes. But we don't believe just the concepts of Scripture inspired. We, we, we believe the very words are inspired. Now, if you look at me and you say, well, that's kind of a, an, an innocent and, 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 and uh, uh, delightful, but somewhat naive perspective for you to have, um, I say, well, if it's innocent and naive, it's exactly what the Apostle Paul believed and Jesus believed about Scripture. And the reason you know that is the Apostle Paul and Jesus were willing to take specific words, specific tenses, specific plurals and singulars, and on the basis of those things, to have their entire argument right. So if it's just the general concept that matters, why would Jesus base an entire argument on the tense of a verb? You err not knowing Scripture, nor the power of God. Doesn't it say, 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember what Jesus responded? Those are his words. In other words, how can God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they're dead? But he says, Scripture says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a tense verb. And if you look down in our text today, you will see the Apostle Paul bases his entire argument on whether it's a plural or a singular. Do you see that? He does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. So, how do you come up with a low view of Scripture where it's just the general concepts of Scripture that are inspired if you see Jesus and if you see Paul making a case that the entire case falls on the tense of a verb or the entire case falls on whether it's a singular or a plural? And this is the great error of mainline churches. Mainline churches are always saying to God, God, look, we know what you want, but we have a different way of getting there. And look at our hearts. Our inclinations are right. You remember the statement, the road to hell is paved with good inclinations. Okay? And so it doesn't just matter what our inclinations are, our intentions, but it really matters what God said. And words are how God has chosen to speak to us. God doesn't just speak to us through nature. We all agree that God does speak through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day after day and night after night, there is no language, no people group, no place where it doesn't speak. So yes, nature does reveal God to us. But God has chosen to be foolish enough to use the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All right? And that word is Jesus Christ, and that word, Jesus Christ, is laid down in this word, and we would not know about Jesus Christ, about his death, about his resurrection, about his virgin birth, were it not for the word. We would not know that from eternity past, God had decreed that that word would come without the prophecies of the Old Testament. We would not know about the coming judgment without this word. So... The language of nature is enough to condemn us. It is not enough to save us. We cannot be saved unless someone preaches. How will they hear? Unless a preacher tells them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who tell the good news. And so, it is not enough to commune with nature. It is not enough to say that we believe that this book is God's revelation, but it's a revelation that's general and that it's the intent behind the text that matters and not the text itself. It's not enough to say that we believe that the concepts that are revealed in Scripture inspire, but not the words, because that will lead us astray. If we held to that position, the entire argument Paul's making this morning is thrown out the window because it's based on whether it's a plural or a singular. Now, You're all right with me so far, generally, most of you. But now I'm going to go to the word brethren. The title of this sermon is simply that word, brethren. And I'm going to say, all right, so what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If the Apostle Paul is capable of making an entire argument on the basis of the word seed versus seeds, we need to hear the words of Scripture and we need to decide whether the words of Scripture that are specifically given, explicitly given, graphically written, tangibly passed on to us through books and pages and print. We need to decide whether those words have any value to us. 
And God have mercy on me. Remember, I constantly tell you that the only reason I preach on these subjects is because for many, many years, I was absolutely in rebellion against these specific truths of Scripture because I was just your common, everyday baby boomer. I saw a cartoon in the New Yorker yesterday. That's two undertakers talking to each other, and the one undertaker says to the other undertaker, well, take comfort from this. You know, something like, you know, this year, two million baby boomers will turn 50. In other words, our death is coming. I'm a part of a people group of the United States. We're baby boomers. I turned 50 last year. I kind of resented the cartoon. I will admit that to you. (laughs) And as a baby boomer, I sucked in our culture and specifically the political politicized language of our culture, and that means that for many years I rejected everything I'm about to teach you. And that's why I want to warn you away from it. I don't want to live in la-la land where I'm oblivious to all the battles that are going on for our souls today and keep fighting the battles that were the critical thing in the Reformation. That's foolish. True blood says that it's the mark of wisdom that you fight the battles of today instead of the battles of yesterday. Yes, there are still battles for all the great doctrines of history. In the oneness Pentecostal territory that we live, we have to fight today over the battle, over the doctrine of the Trinity. And we have had to have hard words with other pastors in this community over that doctrine. That's not something we can take for granted. There have been worship services in this community of evangelical churches who have made common cause with churches that deny the Trinity and gone ahead and worshipped with them. Never in church history has that ever happened with true Christians. And so we have to keep fighting the battle that characterized the first three centuries of the church. Yes, there are churches today that still deny that we are justified by faith alone, but not faith by itself. There are churches that deny that there has to be anything added to faith in order for faith to be proven to be sincere. There are churches that deny that faith is the means that God uses. Obviously, Roman Catholics still largely teach that we are not made holy because of the foreign righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. We mentioned that last week. And there are churches in the Protestant world that teach that you have to homeschool, that you have to wear denim jumpers, that you have to not cut your hair, that, and I could go on and on, and that if you do these things, that you are among those who are saved. All right? Now, that's not primarily for us, the battle that we are tested over. For us, the primary thing we are tested over is whether we are going to be so foolish as to use the language of Scripture that is sex-specific to include the collective we. That when we have women and men in a room together, whether or not we will use a word like brethren to refer to the whole group. And I know that, um, well, it doesn't really matter. But I think it will strengthen your faith to know that I know that if I were to avoid preaching this regularly, that our church would be larger. I know that. And it's really because I'm a masochist that I keep preaching this text. My elders are so pleased when our numbers dwindle. And particularly when they hear they've dwindled because I preached a sermon on brethren. They say, now it's clear that we are the faithful few. The happy few. 
the band of brothers. In fact, they're hoping that all the women will leave this church. (laughs) Okay. I mean, you know that's a joke, right? (laughs) We really like women. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, if I had a choice between boys and girls to play with, I would always play with the girls. And my mother tells me that when I was a little boy, she once said to me, Tim, why do you always play with the girls? And I said, girls, she's more fun. (laughs) Now, we are not the first generation that despises our mothers and our sisters and our wives and our daughters. We actually are absolutely predictable. We think you're delightful. We think that without you, life would be nasty and short. We are not shakers. However, we do believe that the Bible, when it says seed as opposed to seeds, has a point. And when the Bible says brethren instead of brethren and cistern, that it has a point. And so let's stop and let's observe this word. What does it mean? Why does it matter? Well, first of all, By using this word, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Galatians what is at stake. And the Greek word that he uses here, Adelphoi, the plural of Adelphos, which means brother, so it's brothers, historically has always been translated brothers. And this is its exact equivalent in English. Now, you know that there are words in other languages that do not have an exact equivalent in English. Think, for instance, of translating for an Ecuadorian tribe. Uh, Think of translating, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. How do you do that? They've never heard of snow, and they don't have a word for it in their language when you show up. So you can't just take the word snow, find the word in their language, and translate it. It's not going to work. So you have to come up with a way of coping. Guess what? That's not necessary in English when it comes to the Greek word Adelphoi. Does that make sense? We have an exact semantic equivalent, and it is the word brothers. And so when the Apostle Paul uses the word Adelphoi, historically it's always been translated brothers, which is its exact equivalent in English. We don't have to invent a new word. We have the same word. The word is brothers. Now, as the Apostle Paul uses this word Adelphoi here, it has two aspects of meaning, actually three, that we need to recognize. First, we need to recognize that this word is gender, or I prefer to say sex-specific. A number of years ago, I was talking to my dear brother, David Wegner, who was a pastor of this church, and I said to David, I said, David, in the New Testament epistles, when the Greek Adelphoi is used, do you think that to translate that word sibling is acceptable? And he thought about it for a second, and he said, well, yeah, it is acceptable. And I said, David, if I could show you a meaning that's in the original Greek that is not carried over into English by the translation sibling, would you then agree that it is not a good translation? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, there is no male marking to the word sibling. And he thought about it for a second. He said, well, all right, 
it, it is not an acceptable equivalent in the English language, and it can't be translated by that. Now, David, all of you that know him know that one of his delightful personality traits is to be entirely selfless with truth. I mean, generally, if you can convince David of something, it doesn't matter that his ego is at stake. It just don't matter. David just moves right away. Now, that's not like me, I warn you. And it's not like many of you. But listen, it's that simple. David, if I can prove to you that there's a meaning component to the original language word that is not carried over into English when you translate it sibling, would you agree then that sibling isn't a good translation? Yes. David, it doesn't have the male component. Oh, well, then it's not a good translation. It's just that simple. It cannot be acceptable to translate a word into English that lacks a significant meaning component of the original Greek. And the thing that we have to recognize is the word Adelphoi, first of all, is a sex-specific word. It does have a meaning component that is male. And it is for that reason that our culture says no longer may we use it to refer to mixed-sex groups. All right? It's because it has a male meaning component. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, chooses to address a church filled with men and women and children, both boys and girls, using a label for them all that has a male meaning, brothers. And this is part of God's revelation to us. God deals with us on the basis of our first father, Adam, through whom we all inherit original sin and death. Adam is our federal head, not Eve. And through Adam, not Eve, nor Adam and Eve, we are conceived in sin and born to die. Similarly, God is pleased to deal with the human race through a male representative. Not just in the matter of condemnation, but also in the matter of redemption, assigning to his son Jesus Christ the status of the second Adam, through whom comes righteousness and eternal life. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, please. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we see this statement from the Holy Spirit. We see, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God was pleased and is pleased to name the human race Adam as he does all through the Old Testament where the word translated variously in your Bibles is man, mankind, humankind, and people is used as the English equivalent to the Hebrew word that points explicitly to our federal head, Adam, and calls all of us by his name, thereby denoting that we are named by his fatherhood over our race forever, just as we are named by our second father, our second head, our elder brother, Jesus Christ forever. When we place our faith in him, we are now called Christians. We are now called adopted sons of God. We are now called as a church brothers. Adam was a man sexually. Jesus Christ was a man sexually. And therefore, the language of us as the people of God is the language of manhood. It doesn't mean that women are less valuable. It doesn't mean that they aren't included. It doesn't mean that they are unequal. It simply means that God is pleased to deal with the whole human race by naming it Adam, which is the Hebrew Adam. 
And all through the Old Testament, the race is called, not Adam-Eve, but Adam. And then God is pleased to deal with the whole human race, giving it a Redeemer, all right, through a man, Jesus Christ. And when we are adopted, we are adopted as sons of God. That doesn't mean that we aren't daughters of God, but it means that overwhelmingly the language in the New Testament marks you as a woman with the word son. And guess what? This is very important when you get into discussions of whether or not we, as fellow Christians, brothers in Christ, whether or not we come into our new identity as Christians through marking our flesh with circumcision or through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and faith in that righteousness because Paul's going to make an argument that the way God deals with us has to be analogous with the way that we deal with one another and specifically with the way that we get an inheritance. And overwhelmingly in history, there has been a difference in the way that daughters and sons are dealt with in the matter of inheritance. And this isn't just the result of male chauvinist pigdom. This is the result of the mark of God on the male of our race. And every time we see men being dealt with differently than women, every time we see women having to submit to the humiliation of being referred to as brothers, we are being reminded that God has ultimately humiliated the human race by placing us in our federal head, Adam. And that it is completely unreasonable and completely unfair, as Pascal says in his Pensee. But that no life makes any sense if we are resistant to that basic truth. You will never understand why you, even as a Christian, have a heart that's constantly going astray until you understand that in Adam, you are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's a gnarly doctrine, but it's a biblical one. And if you want to have self-understanding, I don't ask you to submit to it. I ask you to embrace it. I ask you to love it. I ask you to see it as an evangelistic doctrine for this world. I ask you to realize that you should want all of your friends never to go to a church that is embarrassed to proclaim that doctrine but that they should come to a church where we say to you as a woman, brother in Christ. And that the, we do it because the Apostle Paul does it, and the Apostle Paul does it not because he's a rabbi, not because he's a male chauvinist pig, but because he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then, all of a sudden, we go from the lesser to the greater. And we go, this is weird. If this is what it means to be brothers here on earth, what does it mean in heaven? If this is what it means to have a father, Adam, what does it mean to have an older brother, Jesus Christ? And all of a sudden, our whole way of thinking is flip-flopped. Instead of us hypocritically requiring that God submit His language to our penny ante and stupid human morality, and going all through Scripture and changing thousands of texts because they don't quite match our sensitivity to the needs of the day. We say, you know, what is desperately needed by the millions of proud academicians in this nation is that one time in their life they have to submit themselves to something that's greater than they are. And that is God. God. 
the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And God putting Father Abraham and Father Adam and our elder brother Jesus Christ over us. And that when we place our faith in our elder brother Jesus Christ, who is a sexual man, then we become sons of the Father. And that as we become sons of the Father, all of the problems we've had in our lives relating to our fathers are completely subsumed under the fatherhood of God. And we have restored to our hearts a love for fatherhood, no matter what our fathers have done to us. And so I ask you this morning, do you love the beginning of this text that says, Brethren? Do you love it? This word is sex-specific, but it is not sex-exclusive. It is sex-inclusive, and it includes women and men together. Do you see that? Everybody wants to act as if when male marked terms are used in Scripture that they're sex-exclusive. Well, there are times when they are. Like, for instance, when it says, take your sons and circumcise them, It's not referring to daughters and sons. There are places where it is sex-exclusive. But this word is both sex-specific and sex-inclusive. And one final thing, it's also familial. That's the third level of meaning. It's it's sex-specific, sex-inclusive, and familial. My brother and father-in-law... worked hard to get a bunch of scholars together to translate a new translation called the New Living Translation. And when I saw the first galley proofs of that translation, they'd gone through all the epistles and changed the word Adelphoi throughout the epistles to the construction Christian friend. Okay? And this was long before the gender Bible controversy came out. That's why I was somewhat up to speed when that issue hit the public scene. And I went to them and I said, you know, I'm completely opposed to you taking out the male marking. You already know that. They, they would know that about me. But I said, even more, I can't believe that you're taking out the language of family. I said, what do people who are raised in homes like Chelsea Clinton's need to know? It's that when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they are bonded to the body of Christ, that they become brothers one of another. And what can you not do with a brother? You can't get rid of them. You can beat them up. You can spit on them. You can punch him. You can cheat on him. You can do anything you want, and when it's over, he's still your brother, so that Tim Wagner, when he was an elder of this church, had to submit to the indignity of having the elders board hire his older brother who had pummeled him from the time he was a little boy. (laughs) And it was no laughing matter when that had to happen. And that's the way all of us live as brothers and sisters of one another in a human family. You cannot get rid of me if I'm your brother. My brother wishes he could. Nathan had to die to do it. Come on, it's, it is funny. You can laugh at it. <laughs> Nathan would laugh if he were here. All right. So you say, instead of Christian brothers, what do you say? You say Christian friend, and what do you do? You make it into a choice, don't you? Because friends you can cast off anytime you want. It's a choice, you know? It's an affinity group, you know? Well, they're my soccer friends, you know? But that's not what happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You are clomped onto other men and women who are just as defective and sinful as you are, just as hard-headed and stubborn and bitter and unforgiving as you are. 
And then guess what? You have to live them the rest of your life. And then in heaven you will worship God forever with them. Now that's a gnarly doctrine. So brothers and sisters, and don't worry, I can do that. But now I'll do the other, which I discipline myself to do because I'm politically correct. Brothers, do you love these doctrines? It is sex-specific. Do you love it? It is sex-inclusive. Do you love it? It is familial. Do you love it? Now, these are evangelistic doctrines. Don't you think this is what your roommate needs to hear who hates God? Your neighbor... Don't you think this is what the other members of the philosophy department and the other union members at GM need to hear? Isn't this what they need to hear? How disgusting that we have allowed brothers to become the word that union members use to refer to each other. And I used to be a union member. That's not what brother is. And I am so far out of time that we're desperate now. So... Without further ado, I'd ask the elders to come forward so that we can now come to the family table where those of us who are brothers in Christ are welcomed and admitted.